out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. Let's not beat around the bush. This week, it's going to be the turn of the guitarist, Danny B. Harvey, who I've been trying to get for absolutely ages and managed to eventually track him down and get his interview. So hugely excited. Um, he's worked with so many people, including Levi Dexter, Tim Polcat, Johnny Ramone, Nancy Sinatra, also Lemmy Peel Meister in the Headcats alongside Slim Jim. And uh, if you get a chance, do check out those recordings out. And also on YouTube, there's a brilliant live album or live show, so do find that. And has worked with lots and lots of other people and is currently working with Annie Marie Lewis, who's a slightly distant relative of Jerry Lee Lewis. But uh, we're going to find a lot more about that in the interview. This, though, is going to be it. After several minutes of casual chat, we got down to a very exciting subject that was, um, yes, his prolific output and what he's doing at the moment. So, Danny, take it away. Oh yes, but it's it's it started out with the Robert Gordon album, but then from there it went in like just album after. And I have still I have a Dale a brand new Dale Watson album I produced that's that's going to come out next next year. So there's still stuff in the can that hasn't been released yet, and and I'm already talking about doing another album. I'm doing right now. I'm doing my old band, the Rock Cats. I'm doing our reunion album. I'm in the process of mixing that, and then uh, I have an album in the works for January. So, yes, I've been doing a lot of producing, and that, all that came through, and it kind of helped me a lot when I couldn't play live because before that I was a, and I played three or four times a week every week for the last twenty years. You know? Yes, that's absolutely true. I know the Rockettes, as there's been with Smutty Smith's famous bass, it's all become very exciting yeah. again, hasn't it? Well, that well, that whole thing happened. It's just a, coincidentally that happened. I remember they. And Barry contacted me and said, did you see this story? Barry, Barry's the one that first located his bass because someone posted a picture of the bass and said, uh, well, look, I found Smutty Smith's old bass. He's, it, it's in his pawn shop. So Barry contacted the guy and said, hey, man, I'm the bass. You know, I was the other guitarist in the Rockets. We had all that gear stolen. Then he contacted the owner of the store. Then, then Smutty got involved. And then the New York Times wrote the article. But yes, yeah, so during all this, I'm producing uh, the Rockets reunion album. So then we decided, the record company decided they should capitalize on some of this recent press. So I think we have a single coming out next week. Blimey, that is good, actually. And what about, and what about Anne Margaret? Are you working on that um, single or album? I'm doing it. I'm not, but the album's being produced by Jurgen, who's from that band Die Krups. But for one song on the album, they wanted a more rockabilly rock and roll vibe. So they asked me, and I've done a lot of stuff, and I've worked with Jurgen before as well. He's a, he's a good producer. So he's, he's, but, um, is they contacted me about doing this one song, and uh, it's just a San Margaret. I had the Rockettes backing her up, but then I added my mother-in-law, Linda Gale Lewis, who's Jerry Lee's sister, and then I talked to Mickey Gilly, and we got Mickey Gilly's going to sing backups on it. So it's going to be Anne Margaret with the Rockettes with special guests Linda Gale Lewis and Mickey Gilly. God, that is that is kind of quite that's quite something, isn't it? That's a super group, really, haven't you? Yes, it's incredible. What's always I was going to say, what's always kind of interesting because um, you know I don't know if if it's possible to get a sort of a bit of a background also to to sort of how you became you know so obsessed and how music kind of 
shape the rest of your life? Because, you know, I'm, I'm sort of born 64, so I was kind of very influenced by the early 70s period of, you know, glam rock. And then luckily David Bowie was my first singer, my first love. Did you have any kind of mu- musical moment that sort of triggered you in, in sort of shaping you for the rest of your life? Well, I'm only a few. I'm only a few years older than you, but it was the '70s was what I was into. It. I mean, I was just just slightly too young to appreciate like the first Led Zeppelin album or to appreciate Cream when they were around, or even Hendrix. I did. I discovered Hendrix, you know, when I became like 12 or 13, and by then he'd already passed away. So, and and that's the stuff I liked. I liked Hendrix. I like Led Zeppelin. I loved, you know, and when I heard about the Yardbirds, and I found out that they had Gary Clapton, Jeff Beck, and and, and Jimmy Page. You know, they became like my favorite band, and that's the stuff I really liked. And but because I was, this is like, so I would have been like 15, and I and I went to branch out, so I was getting more and more into jazz and jazz fusion, and I got to take lessons with Joe Pass at that time when I was 17, which is a big honor. And and I then I discovered rockabilly, and it was a weird way I discovered it because I at 16 I I got a gig playing with a lot of country artists, a lot of older. I was playing country music and uh. And I was doing session work, and I I went to see. I was a big fan of Chris Bedding's guitar playing because he'd played with, he, you know, he'd played with Brian Eno, and he'd played with, uh, you know, all the guys from. He played the guys from Gong. He played all these progressive rock bands, and so I went to see Robert Gordon because Chris Bedding was playing guitar with him, and I never <laughs> seen Chris Bedding. And I had Chris Bedding's solo album with Motorbiking, and and I went to see, and and I when I saw Chris Bedding with Robert Gordon. And I was aware of rockabilly music. I went, wow, this is like the, this music's perfect because I I really like rockabilly. You can play all your jazz licks, you can play all your blues licks, you can play all your rock and roll licks. It's like there was no that it was there's so many genres that touched on it. You know, so some you know some rockabilly bands they the guitarist is real jazz trained, another one he's real country trained, and another one he's real blues trained. So I was like, I can play in a band, a rockabilly band, and I can go from one solo to the next and change it play all my the blues stuff I love and and then you know and plus all going back like the Yardbirds and all that stuff a lot of that stuff's all like based in the same thing and Jeff Beck was based on Cliff Gallup and stuff so was, I discovered rock was this is like the perfect music for me I can play everything I've learned you know yes absolutely kind of funny I, I did an interview with Chris Spedding quite recently and um, yes he told me I, mean, I didn't realize he'd played on quite so many albums including the Harry Nilsson classic with you know oh, I yeah, can't I can't live without you, and also various kind of combos of Roxy Music and John Kell, and then sort of, yeah. you know, and he was even a Womble with Mike Bat, which I thought was quite extraordinary, and produced the yeah. first kind of demos for Se- the Sex Pistols. So his like his CV was kind of extraordinary. It's like, how did you manage to pack so much in? But um, yes, the man was kind of yeah. on fire, really. Yeah, he's like he's a he's a major influence on my career. You know, what I mean, because but it be, because I was like I'd buy all these albums from. English progressive rock, like like you said, Roxy Music and Brian Eno's solo stuff, and and I remember that there's this album called Peter and the Wolf, and it was uh, I can't remember whose name it was under, but they got all these like session guys, and they're all like from bands like Gong and you know Soft Machine, is all these session guys, and Chris Bedding played, you know, Peter and the Wolf, everyone has an instrument, and Chris Bedding was the duck. And he made his guitar sound like a duck. <laughs> <laughs> that whole thing of Peter and the Wolf is every in, you know every instrument had represents an animal. But I remember, but it's, it's but but that's where I I became aware of Chris Betty and I got a solo album and his, his solo album is so rock and roll and he was on the cover leaning against the '50s car like with the pink jacket on, and, and it's like 
Wow, I mean, so I still to this day, like, think Chris Bedding did it all, man. He was a very great guitarist, and he also is a very cool guitarist. You know what I mean? He, he was, wasn't. A, he yeah. was so cool. So did you did you have a sort of a did you did you grow up in Texas? Was this your sort of home home county or well, home state, really, isn't it? Well, no, I was. I actually, I was born in Texas. I was born in Colleen. I was an army brat, but and my dad was stationed at Fort Hood, so we lived here until I was like before I started school. Like I, we moved away from Texas when I was young, but we moved to uh, after a brief stay in Delaware. We moved to Kentucky, but a really rural part of Kentucky, because and uh, and uh, yes, that's where I learned to play guitar. We lived in Catlettsburg, Kentucky, which is. There's nobody coming. I think it still only has a population of 1,200 people. But back then, it was nobody was there. So and the closest city is Ashland, which is maybe 50,000 people. So I grew up in a really rural part of the northeast Kentucky, which is in the Appalachian Mountains. Yes. If you if you live in a place like that, is it the case that you're absolutely desperate to get get into the city? Is it kind of you know is that one of the driving forces for a lot of people? Not everyone, obviously. Uh, well, you used to use a lot, and I like, and I discovered music. The one thing is, music was available, and I would, and I would go, you know, whenever I go into town, into Ashland, which is probably about twenty miles away, fifteen miles away, I'd buy new albums. Like at the time, it was Steppenwolf. I bought a Black Sabbath album on cassette, and and uh, but that was my first band, Steppenwolf. But then, uh, but then Huntington, West Virginia, which was the big city, which really isn't that big. It probably has maybe had seventy five thousand people. But it was across the river in West Virginia. So we used to I remember we'd go hang out there. We me and my friends, we would jump on the side of the trains and hang on to the, the little ladders on the side of the the tr- uh, train cars and then we would ride the train across the river and in Huntington, West Virginia, and then we'd get out and we'd go look around at music stores. I went to see like the first one of the first bands I saw there was Badfinger and right. When I was 13, and and, had, and James Gang was opening, so I became a big fan of Joe Walsh. It was Joe Walsh was still in James Gang. They opened for Badfinger, and I was 13 at that time. So, yeah, so it's kind of cool. So I looked to get in, go see music, and that would be it. Like It would be uh, hitchhiking on trains to go in Huntington, West Virginia. But but it was like, but, see, but there's no, like, club scene. Plus, I was too young to go to that. And, there was, and it also wasn't as cool as the South, where people like Elvis and stuff used to sneak into blues bars. There was no blues bars or anything like that. And you know, any cool kind of music. But you get to go see these kind of big arenas-type shows. Yes. So I got to see a lot of really big – and I don't have to say a lot. I got to see a few – I still was a young kid. I got to see a few good bands. And then we moved to California. We moved to Southern California, but – uh, but we lived about 45 minutes outside of L.A. and in a really rural part of because there's a lot of horse property surrounding L.A. So we moved to like a town that was all horse property. So I was living in a rural area, but I was only 40 minutes from Hollywood. Right. This is good, isn't it? This is definitely a yeah. move up. <laughs> yeah. As soon as I got my so as soon as I got a car at 16, I got beat and I would drive in. Then I would drive down and I go to the whiskey on the weekends. I go to the Starwood, all the famous clubs. And it's be- it right before, it's right around the time that the punk scene was starting to take off in England. But so I didn't really get too much in the punk scene. But I saw these all these great bands like Status Quo, and I saw, like I saw Iggy Pop play at the, at the Whiskey, and he had Bowie come up and sing a song with him. And 
Wow, that's amazing. I didn't realise, because Status Quo were one of those bands that people in the UK were really passionate about, because music was very tribal in the UK, yeah. especially in the 70s and 80s. And Status Quo fans, they were the one people, you, you know, you could say, oh, I don't like your band, and that was fine. But if you said anything about Status Quo, you'd get beaten up quite badly. <laughs> they, were, they were quite good. I mean, but I was, I really like, even because I got into the Yardbirds and stuff, I really like rock and roll and, and, and like heavier stuff that came from the rock and status and status quo. They were like perfect for that. They were like to me, they were, they wore leather jackets on stage. They look, they look rock and roll, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And also did it sort of make you as a sort of a fan and sort of a teenager at that point, look and think actually, because I mean, I still think, you know, they're, they're, I mean, everyone goes on about their sort of simplicity, but they still made music, which was incredibly, yeah. you know, memorable decades later and will all be the rest of, the history of music isn't it did it did that kind of inspire you thinking because if you looked at prog rock at that stage it was very complicated and you thought my god there's orchestral yeah. bits and pieces here and, and an awful lot of equipment which we couldn't afford but status quo sort of brought it back to a very base basic level really yeah and that's why yeah the first bands i had in high like in high school i start my first band and even though i liked prog rock i didn't really play any of that stuff in the bands I played, but what I but I did do prog rock. But what I would do would be remember our band used to do Interstellar Overdrive, like the the early Pink Floyd, like just jam on one chord, or we do and we did Hawkwind songs, right? And we picked the Hawkwind songs, like the one uh, "Time I Left This World Today" and also "I Am the Master of the Universe," which it turns out like, and I think now back on it, like wow, I was singing Lemmy's parts, like said one song "Time We Left." They had and Lemmy would do the answering phrase. And I even told Lemmy once when we were in a tour bus, I said, you know, if my friends when I was 13 and 14, they would be more impressed I'm playing with the guy from Hawkwood than I'm playing with the guy from Motorhead. <laughs> <laughs> like, so that Live Space Ritual album, so that's the prod rock I did. And, it's, and it was basically simple three chord stuff. Just and uh, So status quo fit into what I liked. I always, and, and then rockably solidified, like this is what I really like. It has the country stuff I grew up on as well. So yes, yeah. But- but in the UK, yeah. rockabilly still, I mean, I, I don't know, in the 70s, we had people, I mean, people like Shaky Steve, Shaken Stevens and various yeah. kind of people, I don't know, they, they, it hadn't slightly sort of come back again as a sort of a fashion thing. There was, you know, obviously, I suppose Elvis died about 77, didn't he? He wasn't reading rockabilly. Yeah. But, um, you know, there, were, there was kind of, we were waiting for the next kind of movement, which kind of then comes from... I suppose there's the cramps, isn't there? And then there's obviously the the um, yes, the rockettes, and then then the stray cats, isn't there? And then suddenly psychobilly, in you know. We, but then sort, of, but be, before that, did were you starting to sort of play that kind of uh, rockabilly music? Yeah, I mean, I was starting, but after after I saw, like, I started to play because I was playing in the Palomino house band. So I did a lot of country, but some of the people would do like like the Ricky Nelson stuff and uh, some of the. That's like the probably the first real rockway stuff because a lot of people would play the old Ricky Nelson stuff and the old Elvis stuff too. But the thing is, they didn't do it. wasn't until I started back when I was like 17, I started backing up an Elvis impersonator, and he was a young he was a young one, and so he half he'd do one set where he'd play old early Elvis, but he'd start this concert with three songs from the Sun Sessions because Sun Sessions only came out in '77, and I never heard Good Rock in the Night, Baby Let's Play House, and and I told him, I go, wow, this stuff is great. Like, it's so interesting. And he said, and th- I remember this Elvis impersonator told me, if you like this, you should listen to Johnny Burnett and Gene Vincent. 
And as the Elvis impersonator, I went down and I found the Bop That Won't Stop from Gene Vincent compilation. And I got this Solid Smoke compilation of Johnny Burnett and the Rock and Roll Trio. And then I, and then I heard, when I heard Train Kept a Rolling, because like I said, I, I'd been a, I'd been a big fan of Yardbirds. So when I heard Train Kept a Rolling on the Johnny Burnett album, I went, oh, man, this is where all this comes from. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I always remember we had a great DJ. You started, I suppose, in the late 60s. Obviously, I didn't listen to it then, but I did in the 80s. John Peel, and he, I remember him playing the Elvis Baby Let's Play House and thinking, oh, that's yeah. amazing, because we'd heard all the kind of the normal Elvis mu- music, but then, you know, you get, like you said, that Sun compilation is a completely, you know, like, ball game. You know, it's a totally different scene, isn't it? And um, I just was kind of blown away by that, really. So, But then it was kind of interesting, because... I was obsessed with David Bowie, which was lucky. It could have been Gary Glitter, which would have been embarrassing. But David Bowie and Lemmy are both the same age. They both um, were born in the same year. And um, yeah. yes, but they both, when they ever sort of got asked, you know, what was your main influence? They both say Little Richard. Did um, did Little Richard sort of come into your sort of orbit at all? No, not when I was teenagers. It was never like I said. I I got exposed to to Elvis and then Johnny Burnett and Gene Vincent and Gene and just like Jeff Beck. When I heard Gene Vincent, I heard Cliff Gallup. Like I lost my mind. I could not believe like how good that guy played. And then I, you know, and, and since then Jeff Beck had did that tribute album to himself. But I didn't know all that then. That he you know that that. But I got but but it kind of sparked the same thing. And being that I was also playing jazz and it was. Everything all came together then. Like it was like, wow, this is like, and the Cliff Gallup has like a lot of jazzy riffs he does, and he plays jazz chords in there. It was yeah, so it all came together for me. Then that rockabilly was, and then I went to see. Then I guess I saw Robert Gordon and Chris Bedding play guitar. And I remember walking away going, "This is what I want to do." Because Chris Bedding was playing a flying V through a half Marshall stack. He wasn't playing a big hollow body guitar. He was playing a rock and roll guitar and. And I go, this is the sound. This is what I want to do. Yes, absolutely. And were you able to sort of work on it and then sort of make, you know, recreate a certain essence of the, of the sounds that you wanted to, wanted to uh, yeah, replicate? Did music, yeah, look, did, it, did it come quite easily to you? Yeah, it came really easy because I already had the, I already had the technique then because, like I said, I've been studying jazz and I had, and, I, and, and I've been playing, like, since I was, like, 15 I was always like the like when I lived in Kentucky and when I started playing guitar at 13 I was like the best guitarist in our little town so I would back up all the people that were 40 and 50 I mean we're not doing real shows like playing in this little playing like for little city events and stuff that been so when I went to California the same thing I was like really quickly the best guitarist in our little community so I was out I was out you know at 17 I was doing sessions already and I was playing in the Palomino house band and I was like a little, you know, I was like, you know, I was just like a little protege. Yeah. But I, I had the chops. So as soon as I discovered Rockabilly, I absorbed the Cliff Gallup stuff as best I could. I mean, you can't really, I'm not going to say, you know, that I, I, I mastered because I didn't because Cliff Gallup's a lot better guitarist than I'll ever be. But I learned enough of the stuff that I could impress other Rockabilly people. If people are aware, they go, wow, like you can play that. And I didn't like, you know, then uh, the same thing with, uh, Joe Mafis, who, who I got into his with his stuff he did with Larry Collins. I learned those solos. I remember when I first met Dave Album in '79. He couldn't believe I could play the solos from those Joe Mafis, Larry Collins duets. Like, yeah. So I, I, I really quickly I, I uh, absorbed it. Yes, absolutely. So then, 
How do you do? You, how do you sort of get to the next stage? Because punk had sort of happened, and the whole New York scene with, you know, CBGBs and and Max's Kansas City and the Mud Club, and then you know, because because um, and then you know the the Rockettes come from Essex, don't they, with Lee Black Childers? Do you sort yeah. of do you meet them at this stage, or is that still a way? Yeah, well, that's that's well, that's it's kind of all. But by then, I I kind of my career was kind of going. I was playing the Palomino House Band. I started backing up that Elvis impersonator, and I said backing up this guy named Donnie Brooks, who actually had a couple hits in the early '60s, and he took me out on tour. I think I turned 18. He took me out on tour, and I backed up the Platters, and the Coasters, and Donnie Brooks, and we did this, like these little package tours. And I then I played in that Palomino House band where I got to back up a lot of cool people, with, including I got to back up Johnny Paycheck, which is a year after he had that hit because he used the house band to back him up for a show there. That's the direction I was going. Yes. And then, uh, so then, and that's why I have the knife. I have a flyer from that night. So, like in 1979, I hadn't heard Levi and the Rock Cats, and I wasn't going down to, I hadn't gone down. I, had, I, I only went to the whiskey to see the stuff I like was more, like I said, it was like status quo, Iggy Pop. I saw Devo out there. I saw the, it wasn't really to go down. I wasn't part of that punk scene that was coming out, even though I was in the same age group. I was much more like seeing, I saw magazine there right my god magazine with uh with barry adamson on bass yeah yeah and i yeah, saw it and i saw yeah and, and yes yeah, so i went down and saw i so i'd go down and see the cool that's the bands i'd see the mainly be english bands that came over and i go down and check them out or but i wasn't part of that whole like you know the band that punk scene at that time but so yeah so in 79 i'm in the house band and so i did a gig i remember i played a gig and the rock hats played levi and the rock hats played two nights so I played a gig. I'd started like a little rockaway band on my side, and we were called the we were called the Bobcats, but with a K, not like the Canadian band. I didn't know anything about them, and we so we we played a gig up in a, somewhere, and, and the gig got over early because it was like a private party. So I said, "Hey man, I want to go down and see this band Levi and the Rockcats. They're supposed to be rockaway." So I went down to the Palomino, and it was sold out. But because I worked there so much in the house band, I got they let me in the back. And I went in and sat down, like in the back there near the dressing room. And Lee, Lee Black Childers came up and introduced himself. Nice. And he Excellent. said, you know, because I had a quiff, I had like my hair done up greasy because we just done a gig. Because I didn't at that time, I didn't walk. I wasn't part of that. The whole, there was no Rockway scene as far as I knew, and so I didn't walk around. But that day, I had my hair done up in a quiff because we just played a, a Rockway gig. So he said. Hey man, do you, and I see, do you want to be in a band? I said, yeah, I'm a guitarist. So he said, well, I'm sure the guys want to meet you. So he took me back and introduced me to Smutty and Dibs. And I think Dean was playing drums then. And, and Guy Hammer was the rhythm guitarist. And, and, we, and we all met. So then from then on, I would go to all their shows. And I kind of knew them because I was like their age. And I looked I look like them because I had a quiff. And, uh, <laughs> and then on Christmas Day, 1979, they, they were playing. It's Christmas Day. I had Christmas Day with my family. And they were playing at the Starwood. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to get away from my family. So I drove down to the Starwood to see them. I walk in, I see Smutty and Dibs right away, and they say, we fired Levi today, <laughs> and we want you to join the band as a guitarist, and Dibs is going to sing. And I went, wow, that's cool. I go, yeah, of course, that'd be great. And I go, wow, I'm really happy. And I go into the dressing room, and Lee Black Childers and Levi Dexter sitting there, and Levi says, I quit the Rock Hats today, and I want to put together a band and move back to England. Do you want to go with me? And I went, hell yeah, that's what I want to do. So that's so me and Levi started the rip chords and April 1st, we were in Berlin. So that was like four months later. And with Levi and the rip chords, we moved, yeah, the first gigs we did were in Berlin. So then we Blimey. moved to London. Then we moved to London and 
I guess it'd be the, the middle of May. We moved to London in 1980. So Wow, that is quite, that's quite the t- journey, isn't it? Did that feel a bit of a culture shock, suddenly sort of coming out of America and going to Berlin? Yeah, no, I mean, now uh, there's, a, there's a club called the Metropole. Which yes, to, I've been there. That's amazing. And we, and we booked, and Lee had booked us, he booked Levi and the Rock Cats to play there for three nights. And it's a massive place. And, that's a, and so, I mean, we went, so we showed, we had the gig, that was our first gig. So we paid all our, and, we, and the plan was then, then relocate to London. At the, yes, it was, it was great. I mean, I, I'd never been outside the country. I had to rush down. And when Lee, because they weren't sure the date, then Lee finds that, okay, we got the tickets. So I had to rush down and get an emergency passport because I never had a passport. No. You know, at the time I was only 19. And then, then yeah, then I was in Berlin. Blimey. You could, you could see communism over the, the wall, couldn't you? Oh, yeah. We had, I actually had a picture. Some of uh, the ripcords went up and they took a picture of us. Lee took a picture of us on one side of the wall where there's all this graffiti. It says, like, uh, man, the teenage Jesus and the jerks and, uh, those like all this graffiti on it, but then they went up and we we go up on the little observation platform. We could look across and you could see like it's all gray, that everything's immaculate. There's little Russian soldiers that that march around patrolling the wall, yes. but on the other side is like graffiti everywhere. And it's just a mad back then. It was just like a Berlin was a 24-hour party city. Yes, it was quite strange because I think that what I found because I'd gone there a couple of times and then once when the, the when the wall came down. But um, you, you know, in Germany, you had to do national service unless you were in Berlin. So anybody who was a bit of an anarchist or a bit wild would go, you know, yeah. national service or Berlin. Oh, let's go to Berlin. So that's why it kind of had a bit of a concentration of kind of um, arty, creative anarchists, I suppose. Yeah, was, yes, I remember. And we, I remember because there's a lot of clubs. Like I remember there's one called the Jungle, and there's a one called the sugar shack or the candy shacks but i remember you'd walk i remember walking through the downtown area of berlin there and then going to a place and knocking on a door at nine in the morning and they a door opens up and you walk in and there's like a thousand people in the disco like <laughs> at <laughs> nine in the morning you know what i mean and then you can just party all day then yeah the jungle was the punk club then we go to the jungle and we drink there and then we'd go <laughs> we'd go see all these we saw the cramps. I mean, we Levi knew them real well, so we got to go hang out at the cramps. They played a, they were playing a festival there with a police, I think, were headlining, and cramps were one of the first bands on. My but God, remember, that's amazing! So with Levi, with Levi Dexter, did that was that the one? Because I slightly missed. Was um, Lee Black Childers with the Rockettes or with Levi? He was with Levi. He was Lee was Lee was my first manager. So Lee Lee was the managers. He Lee, we, you know, he went with us to Berlin, then he lived with us in London. But the whole time I was in Levi and the Ripcords, you know, we go we go back to New York. We went back to L.A. But and, and then we go back to London. So we spent most of the time for two years. I was with them. We spent, but every time I'd see Smutty and Dibs, it was mainly Smutty. Smutty would say, "When are you going to quit the Rock Cat? When are you going to quit Levi and join the Rock Cats?" And and so. And I go, well, I know I'm not going to. And they kept the dig, but they kept pressuring me to join because they, Tim Scott was playing guitar, and Tim and Tim didn't really want to do it. He told he joined them saying he'd do it temporary. He went to be a solo artist, and so I remember. And I kept saying, no, I'm not. I'm staying with Levi. But then, then we had a falling out, and I and I left London. And I went back to L.A. and I I was I was going to kind of quit because things were just too hard over there in London, and we didn't have any money and. Remember Lee would meet us in the subway. Lee'd say, "Okay, get a buy a ticket, buy it for one stop. Meet me in the subway." And I, t- and then 
he would give us money to live on and then we'd go back to where we came from and get off because we could only afford one to buy one stop like i don't know how it is you probably know but back then you'd you buy your ticket based on what stop you're getting off yes that's right different zones and so we buy a ticket for one stop but then i'd have to go all the way down to that central London, meet Levi in, on the tubes, meet him on the platform, get money to live on, then get back on the train and go way back up. I was living in Alperton then, I think. And, and then, but so I, I so I, and I was, and, uh, and I was dating Kathy from the go-go. So she kept saying, why don't you just come here to London? I have money now. I'm getting money. So I went to London. I mean, I went to LA. So I went to LA and then Tim Scott was dating Jane from the go-go's and we had lunch and he said, Hey man, I want to leave the Rock Cats, but they told me they won't let me leave unless I talk you into playing guitar. <laughs> and I remember I go, and I remember I told Kathy, and she's like, "Dad, join the Rock Cats. They're doing a lot better than Levi." So I called up Smutty, and I go, "Okay, I'll come out and join the Rock Cats." <laughs> Fantastic. That's um, that's quite a story. Because by then, you know, obviously we were all already excited because the Stray Cats had sort of hit, which I know. Um, I suppose they got a lot of their kind of influence by the Rockettes, really, didn't they? But they kind of created a couple of amazing singles. So yeah, well, they had well, they had the blood. When I met Brian, he had the Bloodless Pharaohs, and they had the, they had the band. Him and his brother had the band Bloodless Pharaohs, but Gary said so. But they also had the band, the Tomcats, and uh, and Slim Jim wasn't playing drums at the time. It was but when we first started the Rip Chords, we Levi and Lee flew them out from London. So I mean, out out from New York City. And so we, for the first month in L.A., we rehearsed the rip chords. Brian was the second guitar, and Gary Setzer was the drummer. And then they went back to New York, and the plan was they were going to meet us in London. But then Brian called up Lee and said, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, we don't, I don't want to do it because we have a single, Bloodless Pharaohs have a single coming out on CBS. But in reality, he just didn't want to be the guitarist of the band, and he'd asked Levi if he could sing any songs, and Levi said you could sing one song. So... As I found out later, it wasn't because the Bloodless Pharaohs. It was because he wanted to be in a band that he he could sing in. Because he's obviously Brian's a decent singer. He's a good singer as well as a guitarist. So yes. he didn't he didn't want to really want to be a sideman with. And so, and then we did that. We decided to take. Then Levi said, "Well, Brian called him and his brother aren't going to join us. They're going to stick around with the Bloodless Pharaohs." So we moved to London, like I said, to Berlin. And and in that summer, I'm walking on Portobello Road, and I see Brian, and Brian's like. Hey Danny, I mean I'm here for my band. I go, Bloodless Pharaohs. He goes, No, I'm here with the Tomcats. And he introduced me to Slim Jim. Because I said, Where he goes, this is Slim Jim, he's our drummer. Like, and this is Lee, he's our bass player. And I always remember like, and then I and I'm like, well, where's Gary? He's like, Oh, Gary wanted to stay home with the Bloodless Pharaohs. <laughs> and uh, yes. then you know, as we know, the Tomcats became I guess apparently there's a problem with the name and they became the stray cats and and I don't know this. I mean, all I know is Dave Edmonds has that movie, That'll Be the Day, which you've probably seen, right? With we plays a teddy boy. Yeah. Band. You've seen that movie? Is, is the, it was the prequel to Stardust. Yes, with David Essex and Ringo yeah. Starr and um, those guys. And the, the, yeah, and the, and the prequel was it was David Essex is playing like he's a teddy boy and Ringo's a teddy boy. And they have a band called the Stray Cats. So it might be coincidence that Dave Edmonds had a band called the Stray Cats in a movie. And yes. Then he, and he produced a band called the Tomcats, who changed their name to Stray Cats. But, <laughs> but whatever he did, that record that the, the Stray Cats made was that was kind of that Runaway Boys is the first single, and I remember hearing that going, "Wow, they really got this down." You know? Yes, I wonder if they recorded that at the uh, Rockfield Studios in, because I know Dave Edmonds had this kind of quite obsession with Rockfield Studios in Wales, which was Wales. Oh. 
which was um, in England, but well, no, Britain. But um, yeah, because actually on Stardust, there's J.R. Ewing, isn't there, who plays the sort of sleazy manager, I think. I see. Yeah. yeah. A class. I think those films are classics, actually. They've got everything. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't find them, and I actually found someone made, I don't know if it's a bootleg DVD, but I finally I found a DVD with both films because it's harder to see that to be the day. You know, that's what. I mean, it's it's supposed to be based based supposed to be based on the Beatles, but it's you know, but it's supposed to be the Beatles back when they were Teddy Boys, and because they're driving around in a van and doing fifties covers, and, and then Stardust obviously is after he be, after he becomes a big. I mean, that that'd be the day is how he screws over his wife and leaves her pregnant and leaves, which I guess is supposed to be based on John Lennon and and Cynthia, right? But. And then to go off and become a rock star. I mean, yes, and buy, and buy the castle, which is always the thing that yeah. people do, isn't it? But then, when you joined the Rockettes, which is the early '80s, this is where the the elusive yeah. kind of because they'd done the live at the Ritz albums, which they just done that. Yeah, they just done that like about two months before I joined them. But then they were still sort of looking to make that big single, and this is where they had the um, make that move, which they got uh, Mike yeah. Thorne in. So were you? Was that the first recording? That oh, yeah, you... that was. A, yeah, because I joined them, and we were at the time I joined them, they were signed to Island, and that's one of the selling points when the, that Tim told me and somebody said, you know, we have a we have another record due with Island, so you join us, you'll have a record deal. And I joined them in the, the December 14th, 1981 was my first show with them. And they'd done Live at the Ritz back. They'd recorded it back in May of 81, and it came out like in 48 hours. So I guess the album came out six months before. And so, yes. yeah, so, then, I, yeah, so then we went in. So then when the new year came around, and Jerry Brand, who owned the Ritz, was like our manager at that time. So he paid for us to go in to the, and do two songs one more heartache and make that move with Mike Thorne, and we recorded with Mike Thorne, and um, and it was a demo to shop around. So yes, and yes, they they shopped that for like a while, I guess, then probably about six months, and then we got signed to RCA, uh, and then our then we went back in and Mike did some more work on those two songs, but then we recorded the other four songs. It was actually a min. They called it a mini album when it came out. It was six. They didn't call it an EP. It was a. It was called a mini album. It had six songs on it. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so yes. That. But. But that was is originally done as a demo, and it's funny because the first versions of that, the first mixes, is a, so much different than when when we finally did the final. Mike changed so much. He had me play some clavier on it on a lot of the stuff. He also added a, and like I mean, he took the bass and he doubled the bass. The original bass is all quarter notes, and then the, the the one that came out later is all he he put it on a delay, so it's all eighth notes. It made a lot. I mean, Mike was a really He's a really good producer. And like I didn't know anything about Wire or what he the bands he'd been in. All I knew is he produced Soft Cell. Yeah, that's right. And I guess he was he'd kind of captured quite a sound in the early eighties, a slightly new romantic scene. But how were yeah. you how did you find New York at that stage? Because obviously there'd been the the great kind of punk explosion and and you well, know, the great sort of um CBGBs and like Max's Kansas City and and um yeah, the Mud Club as well. But there was, you know, it was also quite, um, I would imagine it's quite a heavy scene as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. By then I'd met, I'd, by then I'd met every, I knew all the punk people, you know, because when I started playing Levi back like in January of 1980, and uh, I gone, I remember going, and I, I met the Go-Go's and I saw X and I, and I got, I started hanging around that scene more in LA. So we went to London, the same thing, like the first, I think, you know, we moved to London, we were right away, because Lee Black Childers were hanging, he, he, Everyone knew him because of the Heartbreakers, so we were hanging around. I remember the professionals, so I got to meet Steve, 
you know, I got to meet Steve Jones right away and, and uh, Glenn Matlock. And I got to meet a lot of those people early on. Like, and then we went to New York. It was the same thing. So by then I was, so we, one of the first shows I did was at CBGB's when we arrived. And, uh, and we also played Max's Kansas City before it shut. And uh, yes. yeah, so, so we got to see, a, you know, so I saw all of, the, all of that in New York scene. So then I lived in New York and when I joined the Rockcast, because me and Levi spent maybe about nine months there out of the two years because we go back and forth between London and New York. So when I moved there for, to live permanently with the Rockcats, I already knew a lot of bands yes. and I knew a lot of people. And so CBG, we'd been, and I played all those things, CBGBs, and like, and me and Levi's first show, we'd played, one of our first shows was playing the Mud Club and they'd actually filmed us for an American TV show called Real People. And they filmed it about how weird this punk rock club was. And, and they had a punk rock party and they, I remember they filmed us, and we were the band. They filmed playing the Mud Club. Nice, nice. So then as the 80s progressed on, and, the, you know, like all scenes changed quite a lot, because in the UK, obviously, I mean, there'd been the new, new romantic scene, and there was that sort of production sound of Trevor Horn, which kind of created bands like, um, or helped create bands like ABC, and then Frankie Goes to Hollywood, and we had Duran Duran. But then we also had bands like the Smiths from the, you know, England. And yeah. so there was kind of a bit of a kind of scene of, like, alternative indie music what was and the rock cats obviously were struggling to hit have that kind of big hit like the well, stray cats i just wondered how how the 80s progressed for you well the rock cats broke up and i guess we broke up in 84 and we broke up because we got a big manager tommy matola started managing us and this is before, at the time he managed Hall and oates and he managed uh john cougar and uh yeah, God, what's the other girl he had? The girl had your saw uh, Carly Simon. So those were like his three big acts. Oh, Kid Creole and the Coconut City. And they had us. So he's a major manager. So we had Tommy Matola as a manager. But he went, we uh, we were on RCA. Our record did all right. It probably sold like 75,000 copies. But I remember him telling us, well, we were, I, want, I want you guys to change your name. And we're going, well, we've been doing this for a long time. The Rock had things like, he goes, no, he goes, he goes uh, until you you have a line around the block to get in to see you you're not big as 75,000 copies is until you sell a million copies it doesn't matter so he talked us into changing our name and signing the MCA and we put an album out under the name the secret hearts and uh and that kind of killed the rock cats because now we're a band called secret hearts the record bombed we can't play as the rock cats anymore because we're the secret hearts but no one wants to book the secret hearts so <laughs> The band once once the record bombed, the band just kind of broke up, and Dibs Dibs moved back to England, and I think that was the time Smutty moved to Washington State. Then yeah, I think he got married, and he he moved to Washington. Yes, sure, but every but everyone pretty much took off. Me and Barry stayed in New York, and I lived I lived in New York for a while, and uh, yeah, then in '86 I got my third manager, which I got a call from. This guy who said, "Hey man, I, I was just in England and there's a band called Twenty Flight Rockers and they're looking for a guitarist, and they wanted me to know if I knew you because their manager Bernie Rhodes recommended you, and uh, and I met Bernie because we'd opened for the Clash and I guess they were looking for a rocket. They wanted someone. I don't know if you remember the band Twenty Flight Rockers. Yes, scary. vaguely. I mean, you did. Yeah. Did you? Because they did two albums, didn't they? A kind of. Um, yeah. We well, did they two did. I was, yeah. was going to say they did one which the New York sessions, but they did one yep. which is obviously just titled 20, 20 Flight Rockers" as well. When one, yeah, yeah, on both those albums I'm on. But what they did in Eng what they did in England, they put they were on Virgin. I think it's Virgin, 
Yeah, they, but they put out that single, uh, uh, Johnny Seven, and they put out like two singles, and they were doing quite well. And then, and then uh, Mark Laugh from Generation X, the drummer, and he got Bernie Rhodes involved. And they're, whatever, they're, who their guitarist was, his name was Ian, I don't really know him, but he, he quit the band because he didn't like the direction they were going. So that's they, that's they found me. So, But at that point, they'd had two singles out, and they were doing quite well in England. And so I went, I, I moved back to England and uh, played in the 20-flight Rockets. But as soon as I got there, I was there for like about two months, and I was living with Gary Twin, and uh, and then and then Bernie Rose was, okay, I got, I got assigned to Epic. And so we moved to... Uh, we moved to LA for two years and did those two albums that never came out. But it's another whole story. It's a lot to do with politics and and, and having crazy managers who have that fight with record company executives. But anyhow, but I want it's a long story. But, but, a, we, but yes, why? Bernie sold us as the new Clash. He went to Epic because by then the Clash had broken up, and you know, and Bernie had been managing him up until the very end. And when that that album Cut the Crap came out. Bernie had taken co-writing credit with everything on it with Joe Strummer, and Joe didn't want the album to come out at all. Apparently, it was just demos, and but Bernie put it out, like, and Joe, so Joe left. Yes, you know, I mean, yeah. left, it was a kind I, of it was a strange title because it was called Cut the Crap, but it was not a yeah. great album, was it really? And, and it also is produced by Mendoza. He put some fake Espinosa. He put a producer on. He told everyone it's this this guy who produces music in down in Brazil. But it was no producer, and it was Bernie made up a name. <laughs> and Bernie Bernie was a very smart manager. He was very good about hype and stuff. So he made up a man, name. But he took. I remember he took Joe because Joe told me once he took the and songwriting credit. And Joe, how could you pick songwriting credit? And Bernie went. Hey, you bounced your ideas though. You came over to my house and played me the songs and said, "Is this good? Is this good?" And I told you what was good. So that makes me a co-writer. <laughs> Cheeky, yes, that was right. <laughs> so then, as as the as the eighties progressed in the in in the UK, we had the great ecstasy wave that sort of happened with you know lots of people. Yes, getting into those sort of bands like the Happy Mondays and the, you know, the, uh, yeah, the Stone Roses and Primal Scream. And then we had, you know, Seattle grunge scene. So as a musician who had been, a, you know, like you'd been in it, in the sort of the, the environment and the game for the, over 10 years, how did you sort of navigate that kind of period where you have to sort of start again, so to speak? Well, I just kept, at the time I was, I'd play with, I was not making a lot of money, but I was able to make, I was playing with a, I remember there's a, they used to have a thing called the New Music Seminar in New York. And this is probably like 88 or 89. I remember I went during this, it's sort of like what became like South by Southwest. And I remember I, and I played with like three or four different bands in one night. And I was working a day job, my first day job, my only day job. And so, and I was making $5 an hour. And, uh, and I make, I take home like $200 a week or something. But I went out that night and I played with, Three different. I backed up a singer and played with three different bands because they need. They went these showcases and I made like four hundred dollars. Yes. So, and I went. I went and I went. Okay, this, here's what I have to do. I have to join a lot of bands, and so I don't <laughs> have to work a day job. So I kind of started playing with lots of bands and during the, the late '80s, and then about 1990, I, I this girl got signed to Geffen. Her name was Willie Jones, and so we were doing lots of trips to to L.A. because she signed to Geffen. And um, and then I decided, and Gary Twin had re when Twenty Flight Rockers broke up, Gary had decided to move to uh, L.A. So I go out there and stay with him, and so finally he gets him moved to L.A. So I just went screw it, and I left. I left New York and I moved to L.A. So and that's, in 19, 1990, yeah. And that and have you been there ever since? 
Oh no, no. Now I'm back. Well, now I'm back in Texas. I was there for a long time though. And yeah, and right away I got into me and Gary started playing around together, and we had we got my and we got Clem Burke as our drummer, who to this day still plays with me a lot, and and uh, and I'd known him since like the early '80s with Blondie. So so yeah, we had a, yeah, me and Gary twin, and and Clem and Gary are still playing. They're still playing. They're they're still playing every Sunday out there in L.A. when they're not busy. Yes. But oh uh, yeah, so we, just, we have so we had this band in 1990, and then and that we played around with. So I just lived in L.A. was great then. It was. So I thought LA in the early '90s was cool. I made money playing music again. A lot of a lot of people from New York and London moved to LA in the early '90s. Like yes. half, more than half my friends were were English, and the other half were like all from New York. Absolutely. And so, because one of the bands that obviously we all love, and uh, <laughs> I've been watching lots of videos, is the Head Head Cat, which is um, yeah. obviously. So, where, when did you first meet Lemmy? Well, I first met Lemmy when I first went to London in 1980. We played we played Dingwalls a lot, but one of our first shows was at Dingwalls, and it was like early. I mean, like we'd been there like two weeks, and we and like I said, I'd been a, as a kid as a friend of Hawkwind, so we go down there to play Dingwalls, and Lemmy lived there in Camden Town, and so he used to hang out at Dingwalls, and I mean we went down there, and so we showed up this soundtrack, and there's Lemmy sitting there at the at the bar and. Uh, and there's a, back then, I don't know if they had a game there, but he used to play, we used to play Asteroids a lot. Yeah. That was like, there's Asteroids and Space Invaders, and every club in London had one of those, if not both. So I went over and introduced myself to Lemmy, and I said, man, I'm a big fan of Hawkwind. And, and he said, well, I'm looking, and he said, I'm looking forward to seeing your band. And I, I thought he was just being nice. But so he saw our band, and afterwards he said, good band. And I, and then the next time we played, we played outside, we played another, another show that wasn't in Camden Town, and Lemmy showed up. And then Lemmy said, so Lemmy would, when he said, he'd start coming to all our ripcords gigs. So we we even learned that song, uh, Motorhead Baby, by uh, Johnny Guitar Watson. So if, whenever we saw Lemmy in the audience, we would do Motorhead Baby and dedicate it to him. <laughs> and he, so that, and that's, that's sign of how I met him in London. And, his, and Slim Jim's had a similar way of meeting him. He said they did a show there, the Stray Cats, and Lemmy came backstage and introduced himself to them. And, and he told him he's a big fan of Rockabilly. Yes. Which, Absolutely, because obviously, um, yes, his love of sort of Buddy Guy and uh, no Buddy Holly, <laughs> Buddy Guy, Buddy Holly and um, Little Richard and and Eddie Cochran is sort of always he he always mentioned those when he was talking about influences yeah. and then the early Beatles and the Cavern Club and then he was with the Rock and Vickers during the sixties and yeah. roadied with you know Jimi Hendrix before the Hawkwind gig yeah. and um, yes that as these things ended in tears, but then Motorhead started. So then, yeah, so this was kind of, was this the late O years that you... St- well, that was, I went up in nineteen eighty. but then I, then I, when I moved to New York in the 80s, I'd run into a lot. There's a bar called the Scrap Bar, and I would, and Lemmy would hang out there, and I'd hang out there. It's, I was, I was the, because the rock has as well known there, so we, we'd go into all the same after-hours clubs. But we weren't really, we were, we, we knew each other from when we first met, so I just always go, hey, Lemmy, how you doing? He'd say, hey, Danny, and we'd, and maybe talk for like five minutes, but we weren't, we didn't hang out outside of after hours bars. But, and then when it didn't, and he moved to, then I moved to LA and he, I guess he'd always, he lived in LA all along. He just was always spending different times, different city. But me and then me and then about the mid nineties, we started this rockabilly super group. And it was with Tim Polecat from the Polecats, who I had also known since like 1980. And, and Smutty, my Smutty was my bandmate, and Slim Jim, who like I guess remember I said I met him when he was like seventeen. It was like the first day he'd arrived in London. So we all we started that band Thirteen Cats. And uh we started playing around with that and and that band kind of evolved 
Then Brian had Brian Setzer had a hit with his is a uh, orchestra music, and so Brian Prayer up that owns Cleopatra Record asked me and Slim Jim if we get Lee Rocker and if we wanted to make a, an album and and call it the Swing Cats and capitalize on you know Brian's success in swing music. So Lee said he would do it, but he would only do it if we did more blues, like jump blues. So we made two Swing Cat albums. Uh, with It was just basically the rhythm section of the Stray Cats and me playing guitar. And then we got guest singers on it. Yes. God, that was... Um, so you did... Yeah, they, quite, that was kind of Cleopatra Records, wasn't it? That was kind of... Yeah. Who, they helped me. They, they helped. They, they just started about 95. And I met Brian when he used to... He's on a record store called Vinyl Fetish, and I used to hang out there. I lived on Melrose when I first went to LA. So Brian used to be like co-owner and he used to, he used to sell bootleg t-shirts. And my friend Matt, who's now like one of the executives at Cleopatra, he was, he was, he's my friend from New York. So he used to work in there. So I used to just go hang out. And, and they started, 95, they start Cleopatra. No. Right. And it's still and, going um, strong now, I guess. Well, they're great. I'm not like half everything I'm doing now. So. Yes. So then after the second Swing Cats record, Lee said, I don't really want to do this. I want to concentrate on my solo thing. So Brian asked me and Slim Jim if we want to do, hey, do you want to do a tribute to Elvis? And since we know all these famous people, we said, yeah, we'll do it. So we decided the best thing to do is to get Lemmy and Johnny Ramone to play on the same track. We do like you know, with Johnny Ramone and me playing guitar. And I actually, I was originally going to play bass, but I but Johnny wanted me to play guitar. So I ended up playing bass and overdubbing guitar. But what we did is a me, Johnny, and, and Lim, I mean, me, Johnny, and Slim Jim, then we, then we brought Lemmy in to sing it, and we did that song, Viva Las Vegas and Good Rockin' Tonight. So Lemmy sang Good Rockin' Tonight, and, you know, there's that version of the head cat with, uh, they call it, so head with Johnny Ramon playing guitar, but then uh, when Lemmy went to sing Viva Las Vegas, he went, no, nah, man, this is the wrong key. I can't sing it. I said, well, we just followed the original key, because Johnny had said, let's follow it. He said, well, I can't sing this. And he goes, Dan, you pick up a bass, and Let's just record two songs. We recorded the three of us uh, all shook up, and uh, I've been trying to get to you, you know. And we record those two songs as a trio. And then Lemmy goes, "This should be a band, man." <laughs> and I would, and I said, "Me and Slim Jim, we can get us a record deal." And he goes, "Well, let's do a record." And that's kind of how Headcat started. Fantastic, and it um, yes, because I was watching. The video which you recorded in was it 2007? You know the rocking rocking 50s fest, which had, oh yeah yeah, which was just yeah. absolutely stunning. And um, you know it sounded fantastic. Did you did you get quite of um, a lot of good press for that and uh, and sort of committed fans? Here's the funny thing, and I mean when it, I mean a lot of people don't really, when let me start playing with us in '99. We started our first show was New Year's Eve, like it was the Y2K New Year's Eve show. Because Lemmy was back, and we'd just done that album. I don't even, not even sure if it was released yet, but we'd finished the album, and we played it. Jim had opened a club called the Cat Club, and so we, the three of us went and played. But Lemmy wanted to play guitar in the band because he played acoustic on the album. So we got John Carducci, who's a coach. He was the bass player for uh, the Fuzz Tones. Now he's a he's a VJ on uh, I mean, sorry, he's a DJ on uh, Underground Garage, the Little Stevens thing. Yeah. Speedy John is the name of his, but he was, so I got him to play electric bass and we did our first show and we, I don't think we ever planned on playing live, but we did that show and it was a good show. And then it kind of set around and like, and in, in, in 73, I think we played a show and, and each time we had a different bass player, we had Lee Rocker play with us once. We had, uh, uh, 
different people. But but then a, uh, then uh, Cleopatra asked if we want to make a live DVD, and they'd pay us somebody to film a live concert. So we we did that rocking on Sunset Strip, and we filmed it at the Cat Club, Jim's Club. And then after that, that was like in 2000. Then Lemmy said we should start doing more shows. And so I think that next year we played three shows, and then then we played. That's when we played the Rock and Fifties Festival. Yes, and then you also brought out a second album or third, the yeah. Walk the Walk, Talk to the Talk as well. Yeah, and then yeah, so yeah, that was so then. But in the first shows we did, Lemmy played the first show we did. He played acoustic, and then he decided he wanted to play electric. So the volume went up a little bit. But by the time we did that Rocking Fifty Fest, we went out. We did like a little five or six show run in in the Midwest, and Lemmy said. We had a stand-up bass player, a really great stand-up bass player. But let me said, I want to play bass too. And I go, we go, we have two basses. He's like, that's cool. I go, and he says, he me my. He said, Jed Harris used to do that. You know, the guy from the Shadows. He, and Jed Harris had a thing. He had two bass players in the band, so we did it. And then, of course, the volume went up to like almost Motorhead level because now, you know, even though I only had one stack, let me would turn everything to ten. So, and it was that's when the energy really started coming out, like. People like loved it because it kind of crossed all the genres of, of you know, punk and metal and and rock and Lemmy's everything is all rock and roll. So it's like, it's like listening to people do rockabilly songs. I always said sound like Motorhead playing rock and rockabilly songs. You know? Yes, so- absolutely. And then when did you start to sort of just think that point where you thought actually I'm just going to, I'm just going to go out as myself now and no longer be sort of part of different bands. Well, like I said back then, it was. But by then, Headcat was doing. We still like the first year, like I said, we did three shows. Then the next year, we did six. Next year, we did twelve. Then let me start. Would start doing more and more shows. But I don't think we ever played more than maybe twenty shows in a year. But it'd always be whatever Motorhead was off. And, and Motorhead had a schedule that they would right before Christmas they would they would would start at the beginning of the year. Let me would be at home in January and February, and then he'd go out and do some using American tour, some tour like in March and April. Then he'd come back and. Uh, and we'd have only had we have the month of May to we could do shows and then he'd go into then he'd come back and and then we'd be able to play like the August beginning of September and then he'd go on his whole every year they do this big tour of Europe and he'd come back right before Christmas and Lemmy just liked to play he didn't like to ever sit around where the other guys I guess didn't mind having two months off or three months so so Lemmy would do headcatch shows during then so we that was kind of how Headcat works. So during that other time when Motor, I Motor uh, Headcat became big enough that I was able to like uh, start doing like I could say, oh, you know, Danny from Headcat, can I book a show? And they weren't big shows, but I started doing more and more solo stuff. Yes, and that did did that feel a bit of a relief after years of sort of being in other bands? But you could. Well, in a way, I like I like being in bands. I never even started singing. The first song I ever sang on was on that that Swing Cats record when we did a. Uh, St. James Infirmary, and we had uh, Jeff Skunk Baxter from uh, Steely Dan play guitar with us, and it's the first song I ever sang on a record. I never, I just did not like singing. Much more comfortable. I'm not saying I sing good, but I'm at least now I don't care. And I'm, but back then I was, I would just never want to sing, and I'd much rather join a band and be the guitar player. Yes, absolutely. So is is your current band, is this the one with Anne Marie Lewis in? Yeah, but me and Annie, you know, since me and Annie got married, we've been doing a, most of the stuff I've been doing with, with Annie is involved Annie to some extent. You know, I still have I have the band the Sixty Nine Cats, which is another super group that a weird thing that happened with uh, 
you know, there's a, a singer from 69 Eyes, and he contacted me and he wanted to make a Rockway album. And, and I'd and I'd worked with Chopper, who, who Chopper's the ba- the last bass player in the Cramps. He played like the last six years. So I got Chopper on it, and I got and I got my friend Clint, you know, Clem Burke played drums on the first album. So I got Clem to play drums. So we had this little super group, and then uh, it was the same thing, but it was like but it was like kind of gothabilly thing, and it, it got enough attention that we toured Europe a couple of times. And so we, we just did our, our second album came out this year. And the second album, we got Kim Necroman from the Necromantics. Right. It's, it's, it's quite something. This is called um, Seven Year Itch, isn't it? Yes, yeah, Seven Year because it had been seven years since we did the first album. And then this time we got, because I, this time, I mean, we got Rat Scabies to play drums. And I had met Rat, like, I met him back in 1980 with Lee Black Childers. So it was kind of cool to get him to play drums so this 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 time was me and yerky again and this also has a lot more this has more original songs i wrote most of the songs on it and uh yes i am i'm just i think it's like going three covers and everything else i wrote so yeah god it's quite extraordinary because you this this year you bought out the americana songbook haven't you which is which is the latest album and before that you had um, Hellcat Stomp, Reckless, Wild and Crazy and A Family Affair, which is kind of, you know, it has been yeah. quite a relentless five years, really, in the last... Yeah, and then I'd also, you know, and then also last, the summer last, I produced Robert, I produced Robert Gordon's album, which is which is really cool to do, because like I said, he's the one that started me on the Rockway thing, so I got to produce his album, and, and I tried to make the album, like, the early albums I like, because he, Robert's made a lot of albums of the year, but after like his last big one, he 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 decided to sing deeper and sing more country stuff. So I kind of made him go back to singing like he did, and and I think the album was good. And we got all kinds of special guests, and we even got Chris Spedding on it. So it was cool to like produce an album that Chris Spedding is playing guitar on with Robert Gordon, which is kind of how it all started for me. <laughs> yes, absolutely, and and a sort of amazing. Uh, a sort of energy that you've got and then sort of with the Rockettes which has kind of had this little kind of um, thing with Smutty's bass that's also sort of <laughs> come back into the mix hasn't it because I know that yeah. yes it was like 40 years ago they had the van stolen and then sort of you know yeah. obviously no one else found the equipment but this bass double bass has appeared and then suddenly has sort of become a sort of news item that went around the world quite quite quickly yeah, it's really. really it's really bizarre because we got we had a we used to play the rock cast we played every weekend and we usually go out of town we play like we weren't playing in new york which we play like once a month we go to town we usually go thursday through like we leave wednesday thursday friday and saturday played so but that night we had played somewhere in new jersey so it was too it's too close for us to get a hotel so our roadies drove us back our, our road manager drove us back and dropped us off at our houses in manhattan or apartments in manhattan and then they said since the van was loaded when the next day we're going to play boston they took the van out to Jersey or, and they were going to park it like in his garage. You know what I mean, so it'd be safe, but we wouldn't unload all the gear and then have to reload it up. And while he's, while he was driving the van out and this, I mean, the story scene, his story has always been weird, but he said it was, and it was a cold night. It was, it was snowing, but he said it was too cold to turn the van off. So he, he stopped this thing that diner to run in and get a cup of coffee and he left the engine running. And he said, when he came out, they stole the van. And, yes, uh, and everything we owned was in it. So, and then they, and a week later, they found the van, and it was, it had been stripped. And my, and I had the guitar I'd used. The guitar, first guitar I bought, I worked a job like a music store, and I was sixteen. I was the first guitar I bought with my own money, and that was stolen. Barry got his guitar stolen, 
everything got stopped. The amps and everything. So we even had a we had even had a benefit for us. We raised we had Johnny Thunders play and Walter Lore and and we raised money to buy new equipment, which yes. also got later on. But that's another story. But but we never saw that says gone. We never saw it again ever again until <laughs> this year when some guy went into a, a pawn shop in in uh, New Jersey and saw a bass that said Smutty on it. And and he took a picture and said, "Hey man, I've, my friend Smutty is selling his bass. I remember Smutty was the biggest influence on me back in the '80s. So Barry saw the picture. Barry went, "Hey man, that's the bass we got stolen 40 years ago, and that started the whole thing going." And you know, I don't know if he read that New York Times article, but yeah, like, I guess the guy that owns the, the store, he was an 18-year-old kid, and he decided he wanted to get in a rockabilly, and and he had a precision bass, and he was went somewhere and he had he didn't have a case for it and some guy said hey i'll trade you that this bass for that precision bass and he yes. traded for somebody's bass he never played it but kept it like he never really learned how to play stay in the bass and gave up the music career and started a pawn shop and he put the, he put the bass in there try to sell it and no one would buy it so he decided to make it part of the display so he did put he put up there with a, a skeleton and a top hat and the bass and it was part of the display in his his pawn shop Yes, it's quite unbelievable, really, isn't it? It's a great story. I mean, your whole sort of career is quite an amazing story, though, isn't it? Because the amount of people you've played with and the amount of probably the hurdles, because the one thing that a lot of people got, especially in the sort of late 70s and 80s, it was kind of a bit messy in the New York punk scene as well as, I suppose, London as well. But did you manage to sort of navigate those kind of scenes without getting too caught up in the sort of the world that is rock and roll? Yeah, I mean, I've I've been able to keep working. I had and if a plus one and once Headcat got going, those shows paid good enough that then I didn't have. That's why I moved back to Texas because when when we do shows, you know, it, it took like a long time, like early because the early two uh, thousands. I mean, Motorhead was big and they were well known, but they they didn't always sell out like the House of Blues and stuff. You know, as we did that band, Lemmy became more and more. I watched over the fifteen years, Lemmy from be, went from being someone that. All the cool people knew to to being like an really iconic. You know what I mean? Yes, he did. He he came very iconic actually. And uh, then there was an amazing film, wasn't there? I think there's been oh, yeah. there was one on the BBC, but there was another kind of major yeah, one, which they, was forty nine percent bastard or fifty one percent motherfucker or something. <laughs> <laughs> that so, film that the guys that did that, Wes and uh, Greg, they came to they came to that. Uh, show we did in green bay and they came there and they because they were driving they said it'd be cool to make a documentary about lemmy because he played they and they were listening to the head cat and they said because lemmy does all this he plays in a rock and roll band and he plays in motor so they came to that show and asked that they could film us in interviews and that footage is that's the footage that starts off the movie like they came there and they filmed lemmy doing rock and they interviewed me and slim jim and lemmy and filmed part of the show but and then they made a, like a little like 10 minute like little trailer and they took it to Singerman, Todd Singerman management, Motorhead's management, and let Lemmy and Todd and everyone to get permission then for the next two or three years to follow Motorhead around on tour and make the rest of the movie, you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. And did you, because it sounds like you, you have sort of learned how to do, you know, work the studio and be a producer and sort of know how to sort of operate the sort of the sound, the sound booth as well. Has that sort of been an important part of your kind of growth and and sort of career oh yeah it's been a lot of the that's yeah it has been i mean i'm i know like i've been doing pro tools well, i've been doing digital audio like since the mid 90s and so and i learned a lot of it 
when I was young and I got like my the first producer I worked with was Richard Goddard. And I uh, you know he'd produced the first two Blondie records. He produced first two the Go-Go's records. He produced Robert Gordon's first two albums. You know, I went Candy by Bow Wow Wow, a lot of major bands. But he's the first producer I worked with in 1980. And in during the 80s, we became friends and he gave me lots of sessions. So I learned a lot from working with him. And I was in the studio a lot in the 80s, in, in like big studios. So back then when you had to have a studio, I got to know my way around the studio. But so then in the 90s, I, I built my little home studio, which was was really primitive, but I, it was all, you know, it was really digital. And they even, they even ran an article on me and my partner in this band. I had big reject. They wrote a they wrote an article that they put on the business sec the cover of the business section of the Los Angeles Times about the future of music and how people were and it has a picture of me sitting there at my little home studio, which is mainly MIDI, saying that the bands are recording albums at home now and that's the future. And I remember we got we I got all this hate mail and stuff. People I run into people, they go, that's not what's gonna happen. <laughs> it was like but but I was also I've been doing that ever since. And so since ninety-six, I've been recording in my home studios and as the quality's gotten better and better, I've been able to do more and more. Like in the old days, I had to have things like digital tape recorders synced up to my computer because the computers weren't quite fast enough to uh, record digital audio, but you could sync them up to your computer using like, you know, uh, SMPTE and stuff like that. You could sync up all your digital things. And I, when I was, and in the in 90s, I did a lot of films, like, and I, I made a lot of film soundtracks, and I would be able to sync everything up to my studio at home. And I'd have my ADATs, I had a bunch of ADATs, and I had, and I'd sync up like, funny because I had a VHS player and I have the studio would give me stuff I'm composing music to and they'd have they'd have them on the mono track they would put the simply time code so I could hear the dialogue on the stereo track and I remember I and I I had this little MIDI interface that would interpret the simply and I used to think the cheapest thing in this studio this little VHS machine is running everything when you push play and then it read the simply that would control everything would sync up to the VHS machine. But it was like really kind of, it was like, is this a cool, it's really cool that you could do all that. And so, yes, God, I tell you, it's all a very DIY, you know, world yeah. really, isn't it? And, uh, and it certainly does save on studio time. And is it really enjoyable working with your um, partner, wife, Annie Marie? Yeah. So me, it works. You know, and since I, and I work with my mother-in-law too, her mother, uh, you know, her mother's Linda Gellows. I worked with her as well. She, we did that Family Affair album. Like I said, I'm, and then the album do with Anne Margaret now I have, because her and Mickey Gilly are cousins, just like Jerry Lee and her and uh, Mickey Gilly are cousins. So it's, so I work a lot with her as well. So, yes, the, the, your street cred is incredibly through the roof, really, isn't it? Have you ever sort of thought of writing a book about your, your, your life? Nah, people say that, but, but my book would be boring because, I mean, I would never tell any of the, <laughs> the really uh, saucy stuff that happened. So my book would be, it'd be you know, then Nancy Sinatra because you know I, re I I recorded with Nancy Sinatra and I toured with her for a while too. So I, it'd be story. It'd be, it'd be really about the music and people would be really bored because they want <laughs> people want to hear the dirt. Like, and my stuff would be more about how professional they are, like how professional Lemmy was and. And, you know, which he was. I mean, he, he wouldn't be where he was if he wasn't. But my story would be about how everything, they're so professional and all the technical things we did that were so great. It would never be the stuff that people really want to read. Yeah, it's a, kind of, it's a tricky one, really, isn't it? Because, I mean, yeah. there has been, 
a huge amount of books in the last couple of years that have come out, people have written. And part of it, I think, actually, I think people are a bit careful about that stuff because obviously things have changed and all that. But it's also about archiving your material and making sure that somehow it's being kept, you know, whether it's kind of, I don't know, people love to archive anything, whether it's photographs, whether it's set lists, whether it's, you know, flyers, posters and stuff like right. that. So I, I just wonder if you've managed over those years and all those different places you've lived, whether you managed to sort of keep some sort of archive and trail of what you've done or is it you just didn't have the time for it? Yeah, I, I, was, I just never, I've, I just don't know what to say because, I mean, I, if, I think it'd be like, I say, uh, then I played with this person and then I played with this person and, oh, and then my... And I said, have a great story about them, but it'd be about, it'd be some professional story. You know, my story is about Nancy Sinatra. Like she's just like one of the most professional people I ever worked with. And Lemmy, it'd be all about how professional Lemmy is. It wouldn't be about the speed and about the Jack and Coke or any of that. It'd be about how professional he is now. He could write lyrics on the spot and how he could memorize lyrics like right away. And you know what I mean? Because uh, when because like, with that with that concert which I was watching, one thing that was kind of you know impressive, but it, I suppose it should be really. But at the same time, you know, people, you know, you didn't have any kind of the lyrics kind of written down, did you? I mean, Lemmy is in Motorhead. He has to sort of obviously, you know, he writes all that material. But then sort of doing covers with people, it must be a lot of um, I don't know, just kind of you must have had to really learn the material to uh, yeah. He'd learn it, and we'd learn, like, we did that last album, Walk the Walk, Talk the Talk, has two originals on it. We wrote them in the studio jamming, and then Lemmy wrote lyrics. We recorded the music, then Lemmy went home and came back with some handwritten lyrics. And there's a couple of songs, like, which, like, one of the songs, which might be my least favorite song on the record, although people have told me it's their favorite, is that, uh, you know, I Ain't Ever. And uh, we did and we did that because Lemmy had, he, he saw Dave Edmonds had done it I think before Rockpile, like Dave Edmonds had done it on his first solo album back, like in the, whatever, 88 or something. And so Lemmy wanted to cover that song. But we looked on YouTube and everywhere, there's no version of uh, Dave Edmonds' version. So we found the, the original version, which is, uh, uh, who's, who did the original? Anyhow, Webb Pierce. So we found the, and so we learned it. Me and Lemmy sat there at a laptop and learned how to play it with our instruments in our hand. And then, then we went in and rehearsed it and cut it. You know what I mean? Yes. And that was, um, yes, a, a classic. And I listened, I listened to Dave Edmonds' version later. It's not that much different, but it's a lot more, it's a little bit, it's not that much different. He, but he, he put a little, I can see why Lemmy likes like Dave Edmonds' version. He put a little bit more rock and roll into it, made a little bit more like rock pile or something. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we were following the original 1956 country version. Nice, brilliant, and um, and sort of with with you know obviously the last eighteen months have been a bit tricky with COVID. But what have you got lined up for two thousand and twenty two? Well, we have we have some shows coming up. I mean, we got we're, we're doing there's a there's a thing they do called the Outlaw Country Cruise, the Ameri- you know, oh, we're yes. we're going to go do that. That's going to have everyone on it. Like you know, I mean, pretty much all the big country artists. We're gonna, me and we're going down with Linda Gale. We're doing it, and we're using a. Yeah, my, my buddy Lost Straight Jackets are going to back us up, and I'm going to play guitar because Eddie Angel from Lost Straight Jackets, he's he's another guy I've known since the early '80s. So we're going to Lost Straight Jackets is going to back up Linda Gale, and then me and Annie are going to join her. Then me and Annie are doing a couple of shows on our own, and that's like a big deal. And I and I just booked a festival, like and I can't remember. We're in the process of I should say we're in the process of booking a festival. Yes, 
in Europe. And instead of, we'll see, I, so far it's hard to make plans about live shows because it seems to change all the time. You know what I mean? Right when you're ready to get going, they, you know, something happens and it's, it's probably not safe to go out and tour. So, you know what I mean? So it's it's been it's been a very tricky one it's been very tricky hasn't it for everyone i mean i mean if you could have said something to your 16 or 18 year old self is there any kind of little bit of kind of wisdom or device or you know (laughs) i would have if i could go back now and say don't be afraid of singing what what were you think why were you so afraid of singing if i would have sing when i was 20 i could have probably could have been solo artist a lot earlier than 40 or whatever i started singing at <laughs> yes i know well I, Jim, Jimi hendrix hated singing didn't he i think he used to sort of yeah. hide in the booze and just like yeah that's what they always said I, and I, I read that i read those stories when i was young but it just d- didn't sink in yeah he said he hated his voice he did he only sang out of necessity because they wanted chas chandler wanted him to be the singer in the band and he wanted to find a singer but they so no you have to sing so he hated his voice and then in a way, you think Jimi Hendrix has one of the, the coolest voices ever because he's so recognizable and it's, he just sounds cool when he sings. You know what I mean? Yes, but, absolutely. Yeah. And um, and uh, I suppose you had yeah people like Bob Dylan and even you know Mick Jagger had sort of vocals that you probably think they're probably not perfect, but they're so distinctive. And I think that's probably the main yeah. thing actually. So um, it doesn't really matter. But anyway, look. Danny, thank you ever so much for giving me the time. I'm so pleased because I think this is, um, we, we tried a few months ago and then it was just difficult. Yeah. But anyway, look, this has been incredible. And if you want, I can always um, send you the link and then you could always put it, if you want, on your website and uh, use it like that because, um, yeah, you know, people. people love that kind of stuff. But yes, thank you ever so much. I've been really loving playing, yes, a lot of the albums because you've been, you are on so much stuff, aren't you? That's that's the sort of extraordinary thing. Yeah, I've been that way i've been lucky to keep to be able to keep recording like yeah i mean there hasn't been i mean considering you started so early there hasn't been that period the lost years where you thought oh dear that was not a good period and then you sort of have to drag yourself out of some ditch <laughs> right I, I guess i only worked at when the rockets broke up i started i worked at this publishing company on fifth avenue I made five dollars that was the only i only did it for three months until i realized i just need to join more bands and and the only other jobs ever there was times like I taught guitar and piano at a music school, like in my spirit. But I used and I, used, I did that. So I guess that's a day job. It's still very music related. And I was not working for a boss. I was teaching. Mm. I would influence young minds and stuff. And, and I used to actually go leave my teaching job and go play gigs with Lemmy. And, <laughs> Yes, that's must must have been very strange. Yeah. I mean, it's kind. Yeah, I mean, did your were your parents amazed to sort of see how you from being on the you know air force bases or army bases to being a musician in such a sort of rock and roll rock and roll world? Yeah, well, I know they I know they were, but I but then again, I'm like once I discovered guitar, that's all I ever did. When I was like fourteen or fifteen, my mom used to punish me by grounding me from my guitar. If she would say you're grounded, I wouldn't care. I just play my guitar all day anyhow. Yeah. So she actually punished me by taking my guitar away from me. I know that's cruel. And I, it was really cruel. But I mean, and I would then when she leave the house, I'd go in and I know they hid under the bed. I pull it out from under the bed and play it. So, but it, I mean, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it made it much more taboo. I don't know. Yeah, they're but they're really happy with. But they kind of always knew. That that's what I was going to do because I kind of decided at 15, this is what I'm going to do. And by 16 and 17, I was already making a living doing it. 
And even though I did go to college for one year, it was only to be able to study guitar under Pepe Romero. So I went to study some classical stuff. So, and it was more like just going to school and learning, taking guitar lessons. And, and I studied, I did take a class in electronic composition, but then I dropped out after a year. So yes. has your guitar playing kind of evolved and changed a lot over the decades? Well, if anything, it's become, I I, I think now, I'd be, I, I think it's the, I just decided in the old days, I was much always trying to push it farther and farther, play faster, learn more. And nowadays, I've kind of like decided this is what I do. Just, I've kind of my niche, people recognize what I do. So I'm not really pushing the envelope anymore. Now I'm just staying <laughs> where I am and I'm not learning how to, maybe I got to practice finger picking more. I should learn this new open tunings or in the old days, I try to learn anything I've heard. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. I mean, well, I know a lot, but I, I'm not, I'm not trying to learn anything new. Well, it's, um, I mean, you've got an amazing career. I have to say it's just phenomenal and amazing sort of ability to sort of go from one, one place to another. I just, you know, that's kind of mind boggling. Actually, you've lived everywhere, haven't you? It's been quite extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah, and then now it's been ten years now back in Texas. So, and I like it, but it, who knows? Yeah, I've always been. It's always been like ten. It was you know, it was ten years when I start my career. Ten years. It was first just two years in London, then ten years in New York, and then uh, then like fifteen years in L.A. And now I'm in in Austin. But but during that time, I'd always go. Just I lived a lot of. I lived. I joined bands, and I lived in Holland for six months once because I joined this Dutch band, and then I lived in. I was in Shreveport once for like a whole summer because I was Levi because we were trying to put together a rhythm section of people from Louisiana. And so. <laughs> but the great thing is with that band, you know, the Rockettes and the, and the, you know, all the sort of people who were involved, everyone's still alive and everybody's still making music, aren't they? Whether it's Smutty, Tim, you know, Levi a bit, I think not so much, right. but you know, it's pretty impressive really. And, and, you know, I have to say, I, I've listened to some of Tim's solo stuff and, Oh, Led, Led, uh, Leadfoot. Yes, he's good. He's 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 kind of found his. It's funny because he did, he had some lost years where he kind of disappeared after the Havelinas, but yeah, he's really found and he's an actor now as well. Like in, and uh, I guess he's in not Ice Smutty. He's not. He's in Norway, right? He's in Norway. Smutty's yeah. in Iceland, which is quite yeah, strange. He's in Iceland. He's in Norway. Yeah, so he's. I see. Like he's found like his. You know, he's an actor. He has his sound down. He's doing quite well. Yeah, Tim is really come into his own and he he's always talented you know and he had he'd written that song swear and stuff back then he wrote that song that uh high hopes that, yeah high hopes yeah i remember when he wrote that back in the 90s or when or late 80s when but when he, the first time that bruce springsteen did as a b-side it was a big deal but yes. then when, when he brought it back like what three or four years ago and made it like featured that was good for tim because tim was always talented and it's good that he's getting recognition for his songwriting Yes, absolutely. And um, obviously they like the Northern Hemisphere of Europe as well, which is quite amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least they see the Northern Lights. I suppose that's the one thing, isn't it? So, yeah. <laughs> Well, look, Danny, thank you ever so much. This has been amazing. I'm so grateful. And, um, yeah. I got together. Sorry about all the – I was during this whole time I'm always producing. So I'm always like, when can I get a time off to be – because I'm yeah. supposed to – always a delay. Even like the day I'm supposed to be mixing the Rockettes record – but I'm trying to take it. I'm trying to take a day off because I've got like three shows in the next three days. So I'm, I think I want to concentrate on Monday doing it. So yes. I got a day off. That's like, so that's good. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. I'm really grateful. And um, look, look after yourself. And thanks a lot. And have a great, you, you know, nice great talk. future. Okay. Take care, Danny. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.
And that, dear listener, is how you end an interview. I know, I keep that bit in because it always sounds very sort of fumbly and slightly, you know, I'm just terribly English and apologetic, so um, it makes me laugh when I hear that. Anyway, a massive thank you to Danny B. Harvey for giving me the time um, to talk about his life in music and his current projects. There's a lot of them. Go, go and check out his website, which you know, just Google Danny B. Harvey and uh, you'll be there. I think it's basically dannybharvey.com. And uh, it's all lots of information. This has been David East of the C86 show. I probably just said that, but I will say it again. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 show. Keep it positive, please. It's a difficult time. And also, all these interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Yes, there's lots. So, you know, enjoy if you want to. If you don't, then I'm not bothered. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>